You're listening to MHD Off the Record South LA Highlights, where I, Siobhan Taylor, speak with local organizations, small businesses, and individuals doing amazing work in South LA. Here, we uplift and highlight their work while keeping you informed of the resources available in our community. On this episode, we speak with Paco Retana, Vice President of Programs at WellNest, a nationally acclaimed and leading provider of emotional health and wellness services to children, young adults, families, and their communities. As Vice President of Programs at WellNest, he is responsible for all clinical services, including program evaluation and training. He is a licensed clinical social worker who earned his bachelor's degree in psychology and master's in social welfare from UCLA. Enjoy the show. Welcome, Paco Ratana. Thank you. I am very blessed to be here with you. And the, just the energy and the excitement is uh, beyond me. And again, I'm very blessed to be here. So thank you for, for inviting me. Oh, absolutely. First off, it's just an honor to have you on because we've crossed paths so many times, probably since my teenagehood, and we never actually had like a face-to-face, full-on conversation until fairly recently, where you were actually training in organizations, communities, and schools, and I was also asked to do a training the following day, and I had to come see you train. I had to, so I came on your day, and I loved it. I was like, oh, this makes my job so much easier the next day. (laughs) All I had to do was feed off of your training on trauma-informed care. Well, I was, um, you know, you being there and it's just life is so small at times in circles and and very honored. So the work that I've been doing for 35 years plus, I get to meet phenomenal people like yourself. And you never know when they come back into your circle, back into your space. And I was honored uh, that you were there and really excited. And my co-facilitator, Diane Gregg, says hi. And it was a great, great opportunity. So it's it's a great connection to do that. So absolutely. Well, thank you. And tell her I said hi, too. I will. She was amazing as well. She was. She is. (laughs) And I wanted to really talk about your organization, Wellness, where you're the vice president of programs. And I knew it back in the day as Los Angeles Child Guidance Clinic. But since then, you guys have actually expanded to just do from even doing just work with children, but families, communities overall. Mm-hmm. So how did you first of all, let's ask, how did wellness begin and then how did you get involved? Absolutely. So um, thank you. It's a great question. We're coming up on our centennial. We started in 1924. Wow. And so we've been around for a long, long time and we have a, a great board that's really committed with our CEO, with our leadership to making sure that we continue to be very visible in the community. It's uh, we LACGC, which we rebranded to Wellness. LHL Guidance Clinic is now Wellness. Um, we think of it as a, a hidden treasure that we want to make sure that it's no longer hidden, right? We want to make sure that it's visible in the community, that people know, oh yeah, that's Wellness. They provide counseling or they help my neighbor, they help my family members. So that's kind of where we're at. Um, If you think about back in the 20s, there was this movement, the Child Guidance Clinic movement. And LA Child Guidance Clinic at the time was the first on this side of the Rockies to come and provide services. And so it was, the focus was on just raising awareness in the community about mental illness Uh, making sure that people recognize early signs of mental illness and get treatment if they needed to. This was back in the 1920s? Yeah. Wow, that's like way early. Way moving. Because the way didn't even start until the 60s. Correct. And so there is this uh, uh, 
focus, and there was other guidance clinics that came here in San Fernando, Long Beach as well. So we've been the longest around here. So I think it's great that uh, here we are with a rich history of leadership and innovation since the t- early 20s. We were finally got housed in, in off Adams in 1962. And a couple of things that I that looked at at this time uh, in the and just to give perspective in 1924, uh, President Calvin Coolidge signs the Indian Citizenship Act into law, so making it for uh, our our Native American uh, uh, folks that are born to just become natural citizens, right? Mm-hmm. So even since then, in the 20s, we had this constant focus on immigration, and then also the Immigration Act of 1924 set more parameters around there. So Alice Island became a, uh, a, a detention and deportation center versus right. a, wel- a welcoming that was. So the history is amazing, mm-hmm. but that's kind of to give context of what was going on in the early 20s. And here we are, continue to provide mental health services. That's interesting. So there were actual social circumstances, political circumstances that kind of fueled even the work that the, the organization was doing at that time. I'm sure. And back then, I'm sure therapists uh, and counselors were having to incorporate those social justice impacts that were um, affecting our community, especially our immigrants that were coming to this country. And how did you come to be involved with wellness? Because you have a 35-year history of working in the community, working in mental health. Correct. And so I, you know, I've been I, I began my career at an organization called uh, Dee Dee Hirsch and where I met a mentor. We all met our mentor there. And uh, my mentor really helped uh, create um, a pedagogy of what is community mental health. And pretty much from there on, I uh, developed really strong relationships, not only in the mental health and being trained in, in your traditional approaches to providing mental health services, but also community work. And so uh, you're familiar with the Community Coalition, and uh, Karen Bass brought me in, for example, because I've been in this South L.A. community for about over almost 25 years, providing uh, consultation and and services while I worked in Santa Monica, for example, for about 10. But in in this journey, uh, the, uh, you know, Karen brings me in to do a training at the Community Coalition on Adolescent Development 101 for her community organizers. And since then, I began really uh, uh, informed on the Community Coalition's approach on black and brown unity, on the importance of understanding uh, those social justice issues and how to blend them. And then I started to, well, how does this fit into mental health, right? And why is that important? And it was just a perfect, perfect for me um, marriage, so to speak, in terms of community organizing and mental health services and our vision and on how we provide these services and making sure that our providers also understand that. So I came into, this is my second journey. I was at LA Child Guidance Clinic as a director of outpatient services and uh, our, our CEO, Charlene Dimas Beinado, uh, uh, we had a conversation and next thing you know, I'm now the vice president. I want to really highlight a lot of what you just said because it's important that people understand the community experiences that are also impacting the way that black and brown people are able to live and it's impacting our mental health. And I don't think we have that conversation enough because we're, we have these conversations and they're usually so individualized. It's what this person is or isn't doing. 
right? This person is or isn't helping themselves. But nobody ever talks about the circumstances that this person is living under. And I think what, you're, what you've just done is you really brought that context to play where we're not looking just at these individuals. We're looking at the communities that they're in, the families that they're in. What have their families experienced? And we don't want to miss that when we talk about mental health. Another thing that you guys do that some organizations are literally just now jumping on, which is being trauma-informed. So how does being trauma-informed connect to the ways that we look at community psychology? Well, that's a great question. And, um, you know, uh, the intentionality about being trauma-informed is just if we live in communities where there is, in, in, for example, in South L.A. or in Boyle Heights, uh, San Fernando, there's areas that we're at, but especially with wellness, it's really incorporating that anybody who walks in through our threshold of our doors or we go out in the field or we're going to schools, that there's been some sort of exposure to trauma. Now, it could be a, an incident, right? It could be whether it's intimate partner violence, it could be child abuse, it could be a, uh, something that's community riddled with community violence, or it could be insidious trauma. It could be poverty, it could be limited access to care. Um, it could be um, houselessness issues, right? Homeless issues, homelessness issues. So um, our philosophy in the trauma-informed care is that every provider, uh, any, any, any individual that walks into our organization, we're going to assume with a lot of noble intent that there could be some trauma involved. So we're going to approach it that way, including our staff. Our staff also are managing through this, right? So they're also dealing with perhaps, if especially they, these are providers that have lived experience, right? Or are from the community or in the community and they are now giving back. So it's, it's a parallel process, so to speak. And so that's the importance of just having a trauma-informed lens. And that's what we pride ourselves at wellness and make sure that we are really connected and synchronized with our, with our families. I respect that so much. And I think that's part of why you guys are so innovative is that you are looking at the ways that this work can impact the people who are doing the work. And I, from my own experience working in social services, I can tell you, I've worked for many organizations and they did not care. Were they fulfilling the requirements that they have from mm. their government contract is really mm -hmm. what it was focused on. It was no interest in our own mental health. There was no, you know, in fact, I worked wraparound services for the Department of Mental Health. Bless you. <laughs> and at that time, I don't know if it still is, things may have changed within the past few years, I do not know. But when I was there, we were on call 24 hours a day. And I was the team facilitator. Mm. And the facilitator is the team lead. So you have a therapist on the team, a child specialist, a parent partner, a social worker, and the family. And as a team lead, if something happens, let's say you, um, your client, which is usually the child, beats up their parent and runs away, which is a true story, right? Even though, you know, it was at 3 o'clock in the morning, if the police show up and they see they have a rap team and the, nobody from rap team showed up, facilitator gets fired. Oh, wow. You're out of yeah. a job. Because it was an e emergency situation, that's your job to be there. And if no one else shows up, facilitator had better show up. You can't live and work in those conditions, mm -hmm. right? Mm -hmm. So imagine a person like me from South Central L.A., grew up in a single-parent home, um, with a parent who battled mental illness and substance abuse, mm. who was very physically violent, right? Mm -hmm. I'm now in this field working with traumatized children and traumatized families, and my job is to be on call 24 hours a day. 
with high need cases. Mm-hmm. We're talking emergency high need cases where things go down all the time, one o'clock, two o'clock, three o'clock in the morning after working a 12 to 16 hour day on paperwork and yeah. going to court, <laughs> right? Now, this same person is expected to be on point and be great and be mentally healthy and execute these services. But you know what ended up happening? I had a whole breakdown. Mm. I got, I started getting the flu for the first time in my life, had fevers, would wake up in the morning, couldn't see, got to the point where the doctor was like, I don't, there's really anything, it's not a virus, we, we've done all the tests, I think it's your mental health. Yeah. You know, and there was no care for my mental health in any of that process. So I think it's really important that your organization takes that into account. I can't tell you how many times I've trained people in trauma-informed care and the first thing they'll say, that's all this is great. I don't see how we're going to execute this. Mm-hmm. I love this training, but our own job isn't trauma-informed. The people who, are, who hired you to come here and teach us aren't trauma-informed. The way that they treat us and the work that we go through. So nobody really cares about the workers. We're just expected to just execute. So what you've done is highlight something that's really important. I'm going to tell you why. I'm going to tell you why you are so dope. You tell me. Let me tell you why y'all dope. <laughs> Thank you. Because the people who are executing the care are also human. Mm-hmm. And they can't model what to do in high-stress situations if they're not given the opportunity to do that. You can't tell them to practice self-care, but you have them on call 24 hours a day. That doesn't make sense. Mm-hmm. You can never relax. Mm-hmm. And you cannot model that for your clients. You can't support your clients. And then, then where are we at? We're just filling out papers, maybe, maybe fulfilling requirements. But are we actually doing the work? Yeah. So I just wanted to say, like, what you said, even though I sound small, that's huge. Oh, I appreciate that. You know, we have part of our strategic planning process. One of our uh, our pillars is organization of excellence. And what does that mean? We need one angle is we want to make sure that the staff that we do have, we're taking care of them as best we can, whether it's through training, whether it's through our ongoing supervision, recognizing a, a, a work-life balance, which is sometimes um, it's, a, it's a competing um, clash force at times because we we're in communities that are in dire need right we work with the most vulnerable marginalized communities in the county south la is number one and so when we have a uh, an organization of excellence you we want to make sure that we're not only taking care of our staff that are with us taking care of them in any way we can sure there are contracts that we got to meet there are obligations there's there's that there's that piece of it but i never mix up I'm always intentional about we're serving a community, right? And so even when we're recruiting our staff and recruiting out there, we want the best of the best because I'm gonna, always going to say the way I want my own personal family treated, that's the way, that's the expectation, right? That you're going to put in what you need to put in with the family and do your best. That's all we ask. Do your best because this is really hard work. So you were describing certain things of, man, this is, is this compassion fatigue? Yes. Right. Is this is it burnout? You know, and um, so those are really um, powerful uh, factors to be to make note of and to make sure that we're uh, well aware of that. So we're taking care of ourselves as best we can. So individuals who work in wrap, we have a wraparound service program that we're taking care of them as well. And we're instead of one person always being out there, we're you know we have a, a a crisis team that will go out there and float around. So it's not always the same individual. So some by some sometimes you can actually rest and know you're, that's right. You're not the one on call. Yeah, we have to, you know. We that call it more efficient. Yeah, we call it rap years, right? If you did three years in in rap, it's actually ten years that you did in rap because it's it's. Uh, and thank you again 
for your service and and being on a wraparound team that that's 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 very noble yeah i actually enjoyed the work to be honest with you i enjoyed the families i enjoyed um even my presentation to the department of mental health because i never got any of my plans kicked back so i loved it yeah, right that's awesome but the being on call part i didn't realize is also traumatizing re-traumatizing yeah. me because like i was describing before i also experience a lot of heavy trauma mm -hmm. and I went into fields not realizing I even had any trauma that's the other thing no one even told me this when I was getting trained that you by the way also have probably had some trauma never even occurred to me it was just life yeah and I knew people who had it worse than I did so in my head I was okay right but it's really important that you know even if you're going to get services from somebody that you find out how they treat the people that are giving the service because that's going to impact the kind of care that you get true because that burnout and compassion fatigue is very real. That is. And you know what you don't want to have to do is cycle through this, you know, constantly cycle through different people all the time because they're always burnt out. Somebody has to leave. I can't tell you how many times I worked in social services and somebody's like, well, this is, you're like my 30th caseworker. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yeah. Because people get burned out and they can't hang. Yeah. I, I couldn't hang. I eventually had to leave for my own mental health. Right. And um, I think that's so important that we make sure that we take care of the people that are taking care of us. Absolutely. 100% agree with you. And, that, and it's it's a commitment that wellness is involved in. It's part of our strategic plan. Um, I love and, that. And uh, it's, it's embedded. It's memorialized. We have an incredible HR department. We have an incredible leadership that's committed to doing that work. And it's tough. It is really tough when you have one individual, two individuals that are, uh, and there's nothing wrong. There's no judgment. It's just life. Uh, my issues are being kicked up right now because this person who I'm working with is reminding me of certain trauma that I've experienced. Yeah. And then how do you navigate through that? So it, it's tough work, uh, but um, we're, we're doing, we're, we're, we're having an impact. There was some recent data that came out, and I'm shifting gears a bit, mm -hmm. because I really want to also highlight the importance of the type of work that your organization does. And according to the report from the Congressional Black Caucus's Emergency Task Force on Black Youth Suicide and Mental Health, data indicates that suicide attempts by, uh, rose by 73% between 1991 and 2017 for black adolescents, while injury by attempt rose by 122% for black adolescent boys during that time period. So I just want to know, in your opinion, what are the ways that mental health service organizations can address this on the ground? Um, there's definitely a crisis going on, and that uh, research um, is, and it's happening right in front of our eyes, right? So um, it's really important that our providers, our therapists, our our case managers are aware of also the nuances because the research is indicating that you're not going to have a particularly a, 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 a young black male in front of you saying, I'm depressed, I'm feeling isolated, um, and maybe even being tearful. It's going to present itself in very different ways. Right. And um, it could be more related to PTSD items like we're talking about trauma informed and so it's really critical to pick up on those subtle behaviors that are actually um, might be indicating that this young person in front of you is at risk of committing suicide even though there's no history of suicidal ideation there mean there's no history of any hospitalizations as a result of uh, of suicidal ideation so it's really lifting up raising awareness of of this particular uh, situation that is occurring and so once um, we're able to uh, 
lift that, uh, you know, inform our providers and our families that we're working with that uh, you may, depression may look very different or anxiety may look very different in different ways. So we are very attuned to it. We are in, in our strategic planning process. One of our, one of our goals is to uh, work with uh, how to not only improve our outreach to, to our black community, but also what kind of evidence-based practice models can we utilize that are either promising practices. You know, Dr. Show Grills is always dropping wisdom about it's there's EBPs and then there's community fine practices that are more rooted in cultural, uh, more rooted in cultural um, heritage um, pedagogies, for example. And there's you know whether it's drumming or healing circles or restorative justice practices. But that's part of our strategic planning process as well. Um, we're looking at one particular program that's done at the Harlem Children's Zone, and it's great. And it's and it's the interventions are targeting black youth that are uh, in the ages of like middle school and high school to help mitigate those symptoms that may appear like depression or, or there's a high risk uh, or suicidal ideation and just having uh, utilizing this particular engagement model informing family. So we're really excited about looking into that. So that's an example of what we're doing. So that's, you, you said a couple of things that I definitely want to pull out a little bit. One of those things you talked about is identifying what it what depression and things like that look like in a different way not just utilizing well do they look sad right and i think that's important because i was reading an article before and it said bullies also well who we call bullies in school also have a high suicide rate so sometimes what we're identifying these kids are just bad quote unquote i don't like that term i had mm -hmm. a training once actually when i was doing rap services this amazing psychologist and he said there's no such thing as a bad child only a child whose needs haven't been met yet and that's how Powerful. that's my perspective Powerful. but yeah. we tell each other oh this is a bully they're bad we don't realize that we're also looking at trauma responses and it's going unaddressed and usually if we do address it it's by punishment mm -hmm. it's by let's make them suffer more and we don't, and then we don't get the results we want because they continue whatever behavior it was that was hurting other students in the first place. So I think identifying trauma responses differently um, and changing how we look at it. It's not just a person sitting in the corner with their head down, sad and tears. It can look all types of ways. It's being irritable with your family. It's being you know hyper defensive, right? Um, being over. I was an over. I was an appeaser. Mm. People don't talk about the appeasement That's part right. of survival responses. So you think as child is overly compliant, that's a good thing. In fact, we reward the compliance, mm. right? Because But we don't identify that maybe this child is operating in fear because something's going on. I was getting beaten at home by my father. Yeah. So it's tragic, yeah. as a result, I learned how to be submissive to adults. I learned how to appease adults as a way to keep myself safe, mm. but they rewarded it. So we have to change the way that we look at mental health. I mean, how we look at trauma responses and identifying what they look like. Because I think with black children, we just assume it's supposed to look like how maybe other groups may express it. It might be expressed very differently depending on even your experiences of seeing depression expressed, right? That's right. And some of the, one, one of the articles I was reading on this particular, uh, um, just uh, crisis occurring among our, our black uh, community in, in terms of suicide was also the, the, the issue of and even with black and brown folk, brown folk, we're going to go to our probably our own family if it, at best. We're going to reach out to our own family members, tell them that we're struggling. 
but we're not going to seek out professional help, mm-hmm. right? For stigma reasons, because of judgment, right? So if we're at a school and might be experiencing some bullying type of behavior, or maybe I, there's some, I'm being uh, being triggered for some some reasons, and my academic performance is is suffering as a result of that. Either I'm going to go home and talk about it with my maybe a sibling or maybe an aunt or an uncle or a tío or a tía, uh, um, but we're not going to go seek out professional help. And I think that as long as we're aware, we need to do better on being aware of those those traditional um, uh, ways of reach, doing outreach to both our black and our brown youth. And I'm ta- referencing our black and brown because we work in South LA, mm-hmm. right? And so those innovative, non-traditional, holistic approaches are really critical to what you're referencing now. And I know that you had uh, Karen Mack from LA Commons here, and we're doing drumming circles. And uh, one of the artists that works um, that LA Commons is supporting is coming to do drumming circles with us. And again, it's a, it's, it's, it's outside of your traditional approach to doing therapy, but it's powerful, right? And and that's where and we're targeting our black youth because from there we can connect them to a professional, especially if there's if there's uh, risky behaviors that may result in a, a death, right? Right. And we want to get in front of that. Absolutely. The the second thing that I wanted to pull out is exactly what you just talked about again, which was alternative ways of looking at healing. So one thing that Diane said in in the training that I you know spoke to you at, she said. It's about going beyond trauma-informed and becoming healing-centered. I wrote that down. I love it. Yeah. (laughs) And I think it's important to, it's an important way of becoming healing-centered is by looking at the resources that already exist in the spaces that people already operate. What is it that can also bring healing outside of just talk therapy, right? Drumming circles, in fact, we uh, one of our highlights, previous highlights, we had Josh Ham of Healing Circle LA. Love Josh, and it was a mm-hmm. wonderful experience when I went to one of their events. And they do and they do more than just let's sit around and talk about our feelings. They have actual resources and events. They bring in elements to support entrepreneurs and people who are looking for work and people who were looking for healing in relationships. Like they have all these other resources that are just people from the community coming together. That's right. And so we can go beyond that. So I thought that was really important that you also highlighted that your organization taps into that. It doesn't just say, okay, come see our therapist. It's, hey, we also have healing circles. We're also partnered with this organization that has a drumming circle. We also have, you know, these other resources that might fit you more, especially at this point in your healing journey. That's right. You you know, I want to just really underscore, you mentioned uh, Josh and um, how, Things really are full circle, and I am posturing towards becoming an elder. So I still say I'm a yelder, right? I'm in training <laughs> like to be an elder, but I the I've been embraced by uh, our babas, our maestros, our elder, pr- imparting wisdom to me, and then we have the 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 young generation that's coming up that are now utilizing these rich healing centered approaches, right? Like yourself talking about it and uh, Mr. Ham talking about it. It is beautiful to see that because we're paying it forward and there's they they've they drank that Kool-Aid, so to speak, right? They they they're living off that medicine that other elders have imparted to them. So I'm glad you're lifting that up. That's important. And at wellness, that's where we're always looking for innovative ways 
that are rooted in our ancestry as well, but that are also uh, effective in dealing with folks that are, you know, there's some psychotic um, behaviors that might be going on or other, uh, other behaviors that are um, really getting in the, in the way of having a healthy, healthy uh, relationships with other and being a productive uh, resident of mm. South LA. So we absolutely. know connection is one of the biggest impact has the, one of the biggest impacts on healing. That's is right. Connection. That's right. That's what makes that toxic stress more tolerable. Mm. It's how we get through these tough situations is being more connected. That's why I always question these programs where they always want to separate the families to help them. Mm. I always question that because yeah. sometimes it's the connection. Now, sometimes maybe separation is, is helpful. I understand that. But I don't know about always. Yeah. And sometimes I think it's the more connection that will bring more healing. It, yeah. And it, I'm sorry to interrupt. Anything that we learn from COVID is exactly what you're talking about. One, the power of connection was that it forced families to be in their homes again and break bread with one another and discuss and share and almost have a, 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 el familismo, as we call the family together. And at the same time, it isolated our young people with their friends. So it had this impact about what you're addressing. And again, the, 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 the results of COVID, which were in it still, and the impact of isolation is so powerful and the and the health outcomes as a result of that we're going to continue to see those um, as we you know we journey on the next next decade really absolutely and also just really quickly because i want to get to this last question because mm -hmm. i also really want to highlight some amazing work you guys are doing but really quickly also i just want to point out that many of these traditions that we've had for hundreds of thousands of years are now being utilized in quote unquote science, right? Mm. Yoga, meditation, that's literally been around for like 100,000 years. Right. And yeah. they didn't discover it till the 60s. Mm -hmm. And they didn't start really implementing it until the last probably 20 years. That's right. But somehow, we, but you know, we're the ones who didn't know, but this is actually our stuff. Mm. A lot of this was ripped away from us through slavery and colonization. Mm. And we don't know that. It was an EDMR, I think, I always mix up the letters, EMDR. Yeah. People don't know, but there's actually tribes. I think with the, one of those tribes, with the Tlatelolco tribe, that actually have an exercise around trauma and your eyes. People no. don't know that. It's powerful. So we are being sold back stuff that was already ours in the first place. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Cultures in indigenous groups in Africa, in the Americas, in Asia have been doing meditation for literally hundreds of thousands of years. And somehow just now we're utilizing it as, as a science. Now doctors are telling you, oh, have you tried meditation? Yeah. <laughs> right? And in some of our uh, some of the uh, groups that you're mentioning, it's in our DNA. So Absolutely. So it's, it's easy to awaken that level of, of intervention because it's just rooted in our ancestry, in our who we are in our DNA. And just that one tribe that you're talking about, it, absolutely. It's like, yeah, we get it. We know we, it works. Exactly. You know, it's like it's it's common. Right. Just like traumas pass out in your DNA, so is resilience and healing. Mm -hmm. That's also in our DNA. That's right. So to the last question I want to get to um, really has to do with your organization's work in addressing houselessness. So you guys have just recently opened the nest on Florence. Um, it's your first permanent, su permanent supportive housing project for young people and families at risk of chronic homelessness. Um, what exactly is permanent supportive housing? Well, you know, we're, we are definitely excited about the, the nest on Florence. And the way I look at it is, as um, is simply put, is a, 
It's our, it's, first of all, it's our first permanent supportive housing program. It's a new uh, strategy, let's, let's call it, at Wellness that we're doing because we've been around for, again, 98 years. But now we're endeavoring, we want to be part of the solution in resolving this. So permanent housing is exactly that. It's going to provide uh, young people uh, their first permanent supportive uh, place where they're also establishing credit. They're gonna be getting um, support in terms of, uh, of life skills. So it's gonna be a wraparound program and they're gonna be able there, instead of the scatter site model where there's only 18 to 21 year olds and once you hit 21, you have to leave. And this kind of, this is more of a permanent program. We have 50 units and nice. we already bring, we're up to 30 uh, youth that we've put in and we just had our grand opening on July 8th. Nice. So it's super exciting. And then the permanent supportive housing is, is a permanent place where they, our young people can there develop their independent living skills. And if they have families, they bring in their family there. If, if they have a little baby or something, it's the same thing as well. So we're excited about that. And we're hoping that it continues to floor. And we're working on another one. We're going to be doing the, the nest on Figueroa. Wow. Yeah, nice. Yeah, yeah. I so love we're, it. We're, we're, yeah, we're, we're really proud of the work that we're doing and the support that we're getting from our uh, foundations and private you know, folks just really believing that this is an important uh, solution to housing. I love it. And I think it, it's also connected to mental health. Um, I pulled out this, this reference from SAMHSA, which said that children who experience house homelessness have significantly higher rates of emotional, behavioral, and immediate long-term health problems. They often struggle with self-esteem, which puts them at risk of substance abuse, suicide, and other negative outcomes. So what you guys are doing is addressing something that's, you know, really deep. And I don't think people always even take into account the impact of being houseless, of being homeless, and not having steady or affordable housing available to you. And you guys are really hitting, you guys are hitting this at all sides. I, I do need a lift that our staff are phenomenal, working the, the, the boots on the ground. Like when a young person goes into their, their, their housing for the first time and being able to see their joy and their tears and they're like, I can't believe this is happening. And the staff just really providing that, um, that pathway, right? And being there present. And they, again, going back to their own lived experience and also being triggering some of them have had experiences with with uh with food insecurity or or houselessness issues at one time so it's it's a beautiful thing to witness and thank you for 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 imparting that absolutely we're excited about this i'm excited about it with you <laughs> all right so what are some events or projects you have coming up and how can people get involved and support so we um uh, a couple of things I want to lift up is one that we are continually be trained up on these non-traditional approaches. So we're the National Compadres Network. I got to give them a lot of love with the Healing Generation Network. So we're doing, we're rolling out trainings to make sure that we're uh, in lining with our strategic planning process, right? Uh, we have the, and this is through the California uh, Wellness Foundation that's providing some support for us on that, a lot of support. Uh, we have a golf tournament that's coming up. Uh, uh, it's called Swing for Housing, September 12th. And we're, that's again, people uh, donating uh, money to lift this up and make sure that we're providing service so that we have the golf tournament, Swing for Housing. And then also, I, I did share briefly that we have the Nest on Figueroa 
that we're hoping that by 2024 we'll have that going just like we have the nest on Florence. So those are a couple of items. Please, I, I, uh, getting involved is, uh, is important and we have our, you know, you can always contact us or contact me. I can drop the, uh, our number. It's, we can, uh, it's 323-766-2345. Always ask for Paco and I'll make sure that they get into the, get the right contact, uh, information or we're www.wellnessla.org. Uh, Okay, and is that also the website people can go to if they want to receive services? Correct. We have an access and wellness center, and we uh, uh, no appointment necessary. You walk in, and you'll get a an immediate assessment, and then you'll get an appointment scheduled and and to schedule you to meet one of our therapists, and that's on our thirty seven eighty seven South uh, Vermont address and that number is there so yeah we're, we're there monday wow. through friday Absolutely. no appointment necessary you nope. walk in get assessed that day that's correct what yep that's wow. it that's it and it's it's a great staff uh these are all i call them their essential workers and they'll go in there and do amazing work that way Thank you so much again, Paco Retana, for joining us here on MHD Off the Record as our South L.A. highlight. I am very excited for all the work that you guys have going on. I'm feeling the excitement of knowing that there's this work being done in South L.A. that people don't always know is happening. So I'm glad we can be here to let them know and know that there's people out here working for you, working for your family, working for your community. All sources and links for the information we discussed are in the show notes, including the report from the Congressional Black Caucus called Ring the Alarm, the Crisis of Black Youth Suicide in America, as well as the annual report of the Wellness where you can see the impact of their work. If you or someone you know is in need of other mental health or housing services, please visit dmh.lacounty.gov slash get-help-now for resources and information. I will also have that link available in the show notes. Thank you again, Paco. Thank you. Blessings to you. Gracias. Thank you for listening to MHD Off the Record. And special thank you to Felicia the Poetess Morris of Morris Media Studios in Lamert Park. For more information, please visit MHDCD8.com and follow at MHDCD8 on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter. Don't forget to rate us five stars, subscribe, and share with a friend.